0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rin Beath, the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jeff Pugh about his new book, The Invisibility Bargain, Governance, Networks, and Migrant Human Security. Jeff, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Rin, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on the New Books Network.
0: I was wondering if you could begin this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. I'm an associate professor of conflict resolution in the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, But this will come out throughout the interview. I really have a pretty strong identity as a scholar practitioner. And so for almost 20 years, I've been directing a nonprofit organization in Ecuador called the Center for Mediation, Peace, and Resolution of Conflict, CEMPROC. And uh, that does kind of grassroots level training and education um, on peace and conflict resolution. And that actually is where the research agenda uh, for this book came from, was I was on a a summer day in June in Ibarra, a town halfway between Quito and and the northern border with Colombia, helping to facilitate a dialogue between Colombian and And Ecuadorian women uh, about sort of how to overcome stereotypes they had about each other, the kind of conflict that migrants experience in a host country. And seeing the kind of transformation that that made was really something that woke me up. And I was motivated, said, how do we get more of this? How do we address these kinds of deep rooted conflicts? And that was part of what motivated me to go back to grad school. I got my PhD at Johns Hopkins and um, then taught at Providence College in the political science department and now um, in sort of my dream job in the uh, Department of Conflict Resolution, Human Security and Global Governance at UMass Boston. So all the kinds of stuff that I'm that I do in a with colleagues who are also scholar practitioners so that's a little of where i'm coming from
0: that's fantastic um i wonder if you could also you know you, you alluded to it a bit um in what you just said but I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to how you came to write this book um, because as, as I hope to ask you about methods in, in a little bit, there's there's a lot of depth here, there's a lot of time, and it's it's clear to me that there's a lot of um, very deep engagements um, over, again, over a long period of time.
2: Yeah, so it it has been something that I've been working on. I worked on it for basically 15 years. That um, that week in Ibarra that I mentioned was in 2005, And um, that was, you know, just in the early part of my grad school, and then uh, it turned into my dissertation project. Um, I I never got like one big grant to go for a year to do fieldwork, which some people do. And that has its advantages, because it's a, a depth all at one time. But I decided instead of feeling frustrated that that was a weakness to turn it into a strength by just going every year, for smaller periods of time over this whole period and so i would i ran a study abroad program on conflict resolution in the americas and every time i was in the country for that i would spend some more time for field work and then i was fortunate enough to get a a fulbright um and associate with flaxo ecuador one of the top research universities in the country and that was when i carried out surveys with 600 more than 650 Colombian migrants in six provinces of Ecuador. And, you know, 170 interviews um, over this period. And so I think that one of the real strengths of this book is it's not a snapshot that just gets old after a while. Um, It. Shows the trajectory of how migration um, practices and policies and the intersection between the state and non-state actors evolved in really significant ways, especially during a period where the regime of Rafael Correa was very innovative. They tried new things that had not been done before on migration um, and, and human rights and other things. And so to be able to trace that in part because of just the logistics. That's how I had funding to do things, uh, you know, how my life worked. I, I did couldn't really go off for a whole year, but little bits every year, I think, l- leads to a, a richer story.
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, so to, to really jump into the book, um, I guess by jumping into the first line of the introduction, you begin... This this book by asking a really provocative question: um, How do forced migrants access the protections and rights that they are guaranteed in international and domestic law, but often denied in practice? Um, and to me, this struck me as a you know perennial human rights question. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you came to this question and how you see this book as really addressing this, um, you know, this this very big. I don't know how else to put it than sort of a, a disjuncture um, in, in human rights.
2: Yeah, it's sort of a gap. And I think a lot of us recognize that that's there. But um, to be able to delve into the micropolitics of how people handle it, what they do about it, and the implications it has for the agency that migrants themselves exercise, I think is really fundamental. And that's one of the takeaways that I wanted with this book was not just, oh, gee, in this place, uh, migrants are discriminated against. So man, they're screwed, the state is bad, or something like that. But rather, uh, because that paints them as passive objects of, you know, human insecurity or discrimination or whatever, but not as agents with sort of an ability to affect their own lives. And likewise there's in contemporary politics in the world, there's a, a movement trying to paint migrants as threatening, as bad as, um, you know, having agency, but having agency to do harm. And I wanted to break that as the only two categories, either passive victims or active um, villains, to use some of the phrasing from Heaven Crawley and others. Um, and to delve into how um, they grapple with the realities in their host countries. So on the question of the gap between formal institutions and protections and rights and what happens in practice, this was partly came out of, of my experience in Ecuador. I, I knew that it happened, but I, it wasn't front and center in my mind when I started this project, but I think one thing is that Ecuador during this period became really a world leader that was recognized by the United Nations and others for its innovations in migrant protections. Um, it, it, at the time, it was the largest recipient of refugees and asylum seekers in Latin America. Colombia, obviously, was the largest producer of those things, and Ecuador is right next to it to the south. Um, And compared to Colombia's other neighbors, it was the one with the most open and welcoming uh, policies that they could go. Panama just was pretty much um, keeping people out altogether. There were a sizable number of Colombians in Venezuela, but um, they didn't have the status of refugees or asylum seekers. They were sort of in the shadows.
0: I mean, I I feel like this, you know, maybe it's, it's a little bit too basic in some ways, Um, And because, you know, the the title, of course, um, is is called The Invisibility Bargain, um, but this also really forms a lot of the framing of this book and a lot of the points that you're bringing up about how people are received in different different places and how people are able to um, experience the process of accessing certain rights. Um, So I was wondering if you could you could explain a little bit about what you call the invisibility bargain.
2: Yeah. Thanks. This is important so that our listeners know what what the heck we're talking about. Um, I, in the process of doing this, after looking at multiple receiving countries, the U.S., South Africa, I did some field work in Ecuador and elsewhere. I kept seeing some of the same patterns happening where there was this gap where even when there were protections in place, you had people doing things that were different in practice. And I, I was trying to figure out why that happened and what what was sort of motivating those responses. And um, it, there certainly is often conflict with when migrants come into a new country, right? It's a, it, can be a large group of people who have uh, different interests, different goals, different culture, et cetera, from the new country. And so things change. Some people benefit from it. Some people don't. And so you're often going to have some sort of conflict, but it is not universally shared within the country. Countries are not homogenous. And so you get some people who might really want a lot of immigrants to come in because it benefits them because they feel like there's a sort of normative right to mobility, et cetera. And you have some people who feel threatened by that, who have an ideological reason. They think migration is bad. And I think that one of the ways that you have host societies balancing those differences is by having ambiguous, uh, Laws basically, laws that say something, but everyone knows that something else happens. And so, in most host countries, there is a willingness to tolerate the physical presence of migrants as long as they're perceived to be playing by certain rules that are often unwritten, but they are widely understood and strongly enforced. And that's what I call the invisibility bargain in the sense that both host societies and the migrants understand these rules, or if they don't, they learn them as a result of the sanctions that happen from violating them. And the idea is that migrants are perceived to be contributing economically or, or contributing something of value. In some places, for example, in the US, undocumented immigrants who have served in the military, um, are perceived as, as contributing something of value, even if it's not economic. Um, so I call it the valued contribution. Uh, and they are perceived to be uh socially and politically invisible. Social invisibility is talking about how much their sort of cultural differences are expressed overtly in a way that the host society sees as sort of threatening their uh cohesiveness. So in France, for example, the the hijab ban. Um, for public servants, right? That women who are are visibly expressing their Muslim faith um, as public officials are seen as sort of violating this social invisibility expectation. Um, In the United States, uh, You may have seen news stories about someone who accosted someone in a Walmart or in a gas station because they were speaking Spanish or speaking Korean or something. And they say, hey, you're in the United States, speak, speak English. That's a social sanction for a perceived violation of the social invisibility um, expectation. And then perceived to be politically invisible, meaning um, there's a sort of a logic of gratitude, using Carolyn Moulin's term, um, that sort of this is our country. If if you're going to come here, you should just be grateful that we gave you that choice. And it's it's uh, um, wanting to maintain the ownership of. The, the polity and anyone coming from outside of it has to be granted whatever they get they don't have rights that attach to them their rights were territorialized where they came from that's where the sort of logic of this if you don't like it here go back home right um, and so when migrants overtly claim rights or make demands on the government they are assuming that there are those rights and even when the the host state does guarantee those rights, right? In Ecuador, the constitution said there's migrants have the same or refugees have the same basic rights as Ecuadorians. Um, All humans, no human is illegal. Uh, It banned discrimination based on on national origin and immigration status. But even when those are codified in the law, there's this sort of implicit understanding within the host society that it's still a, a sort of, privilege. And so uh, uh, overt demand on the government is seen as a violation of that invisibility, uh, uh, political invisibility expectation. And so what this leads to is you have a big group of migrants that can stay in the country, uh, but they're expected to have their labor extracted, the thing of value for the host country, while repressing their full humanity, right? They, they have to either... Try to blend in and appear not so different or accept a level of repression and, and sort of social stigma uh, because of linguistic differences, religion, language. Now, which social invisibility um, markers of difference are salient can change by country? Um I would say in Ecuador, accent is a bigger one than language, because a a United States immigrant in Ecuador who doesn't speak Spanish very well is probably going to have levels of privilege that a Colombian immigrant in Ecuador would not have, even though they speak the language fine, but their accent triggers a whole bucket of stigmas that the Ecuadorian society would react to. Um, so it, it leads to precarity. It leads to a, a situation where people are forced to exist in the shadows or feel pressured that they can't actually claim the rights that they have the right to. Um, and so I, I wanted to present it as a story not just of, oh, how sad they are, but what do they do then? And it may be that there are other things that they can do that give them access to their rights more than if they went out in the streets protesting and saying, hey, I demand my rights. And that's where the second piece of the argument comes, that uh, it's through access to governance networks that connect state Institutions with non-state actors, the Catholic Church, and even informal networks of, you know, Colombian associations or things like that, that give migrants, you know, they might trust those organizations more than the state, the state they're worried might deport them. So they're trying to avoid uh, interaction with the state. So they approach those organizations because they trust them more. And those organizations may or may not have the things to help them in terms of rights, resources, um, recognition, and and protection, but they do have relationships, right? So the UN High Commission on Refugees, or HIAS, which is the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, or again, the Catholic Church, these are high-profile organizations that are not the state, but they have leverage. They have a, a what Abers and Keck call practical authority because they can do things. They can convene meetings and the state comes. And so that gives them a sense of power to be brokers, to be intermediaries, to negotiate with a state sometimes on behalf of the migrants. Sometimes it's introducing them to talk directly, as happened um, with an example I give in the book in the Constitution, where a small legal aid NGO um, invited some of the Mm -hmm. refugee leaders that they had worked with to the Constitutional Convention through the strength of the personal connections of the director and I show a table that compares the proposal they brought with the language in the constitution. So you can see some real power to these kinds of brokered access through networks. And to me, that still is an important part of claiming rights, even if it's through other avenues, not confrontational demands, but sort of coalition building and networking.
0: Yeah. Um, that, that response just, I don't know, there I, I have so many questions for you um, about this. It's just, it's so, so rich. Um, in, in what you were just uh, discussing in terms of different institutions, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, because um, in particular, um, I, I was really, really compelled by your focus Thinking about migration, not just in terms, again, of these nation state institutions, but also taking seriously, you know, international organizations, and then also these local groups that have, um, I don't know, that that seem like they are, you know, resources or support or brokers, as you just said, um, for those who are not able to access their rights um, because of this, this quote unquote, invisibility bargain.
2: Yeah, so... In this argument with the with the governance networks, my argument is that in localities where there is a dense and diverse network of institutions that can provide access to protection and, and um, resources for migrants, the migrants will have better human security than in those places where it's not as d- dense or not as diverse. And the diversity piece is kind of important because... If there's one thing that connects almost all of my research agenda, it's a a real belief in the power of civil society as a political actor. That it's not this sort of marginal thing that snipes at states who are the real story. To me, um, you know, the the sort of international society is shaped in large part by the the people in it, and. Other than states, one of the major organizing devices that we have is through non-state actors, um, international organizations, etc., and states have limits as, in terms of their ability to be the primary provider of security within their territory. That's the de- basically the definition of what we think of as a state, but it matters who they're providing security for. And for migrants, there is a political incentive, that, at, talking mostly right now about democratic states, to uh, respond to the interests and demands of those who vote for them. And migrants at least in Ecuador, largely do not vote because they haven't been there long enough. And so the state has a kind of a built-in political incentive not to be an equal access provider of security to everyone who needs it in in their territory, but rather to respond to the demands of citizens. And sometimes those demands look like, why don't you scapegoat these outsiders? And so they become not only providers of security, but inflictors of insecurity on the out group in order to respond to that political incentive of their citizens. So given the limitations that the state has as a sort of provider of protection, um, a diverse network that has access points through organizations that don't have those same political incentives opens up space where if a migrant um, is robbed, for example, on the street, and I, I There's surveys on this. Most people who say they've experienced a a violent crime in the past year, when I asked them, what did you do about it? They said nothing. And um, those who did go to the police, most of them said it didn't help. Um, And so there's a real and this is frankly, isn't just migrants who say this. Ecuadorians say this too. But um, particularly for migrants, um, there's a, a perception that the state is not going to be the primary provider of protection. But the UN High Commission on Refugees and the Catholic Church are the other two big or non-state organizations, kind of clusters of institutions, really, that I focus on as having a lot of authority in the space of migrant. And it changed over time. At first, they had that authority because the state had no experience with receiving large groups of refugees um, and didn't really have capacity to deal with it. So by default, the institution that was in place in far-flung regions in the border regions were the churches, the missionaries that had been there for a long time. And so this really started around 2000. Obviously, there were people who came in before that, but with Plan Colombia, the militarized U.S. assistant package to Colombia that allowed them to fight much more efficiently in places they hadn't been able to before, that led to a lot more people being displaced. Those people fled Colombia to, again, the nearest safe place they could, which um, in many cases was Ecuador. And so the the number of, of refugees and asylum seekers spiked starting in 2000 and then really just kept going um, after that. And... During that first period, the the church first, and then when the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees was invited in to sort of help deal with this growing um, challenge, they set up processes to try to um, you know register refugees, eventually to actually work with the state to have mobile refugee clinics um, to bring the status determination process out to where the migrants were um, who needed. be refugees and just hadn't come all the way to Quito, uh, either because they couldn't afford to or didn't know how to or were afraid to. Um, And that doubled the number of registered refugees within a year. Um, So different kinds of organizations play a really key role. And I'll finish by just this caveat. I am not making the case, as I'm sometimes accused of, of saying all NGOs are angelic and all states are bad. In fact, you have different political incentives that international organizations have and NGOs have and churches have, Uh, you know, the church you could accuse of proselytizing of, um, you know, having a, a sort of sometimes an assistant, uh, a paternalistic approach in some cases. Um, international organizations are sometimes uh, accused of donor driven agendas that people in Geneva or somewhere else are deciding what you can spend money on, not people right on the ground with an awareness of the political reality and also of a sort of democratic deficit. Who voted for the UN? Right, And why do they have legitimacy to say what should happen here? The sovereignty argument is a legitimate thing that states use to say, well, we should be the one driving this process. Uh, So it's not that any one organization is all right or all wrong, but the diversity, when they're all coordinated and connected with each other, it kind of... That fragmentation means that somebody is going to have a political incentive that is more open space, that is is not pushing out migrants in this context. And then they're going to be able to refer them or direct them within the network to the source of help that they need. So that's kind of where that comes from.
0: So something that I, I really appreciated in your answer that's... Um really really problematizing this idea of you know one singular kind of NGO or one you know way of understanding the state I don't know just I, I really appreciate that nuance maybe it's the anthropologist in me I don't know um, but I also really appreciated how when you're talking about people who are experiencing um, forced migration you're not talking about just one particular category and and throughout the book you also note how, um, you know, differences really impact how people um, how people experience um, the the process of migration. Um, you already alluded to uh, questions of um, of of accents. Um, but I was additionally really taken by your point about how race and ethnicity can also form um, different ways that, that people you know, experience um, accessing their rights. Um, you give the example of Afro-Colombians um, as well as others. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more towards, again, those differences in people who have experienced or who are experiencing forced migration.
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, the sort of social invisibility expectation isn't just sort of one single recipe that gets applied everywhere in the same way. Um, Each receiving context has a sort of social construction within society of a hierarchy to some extent of power, of, of belongingness. And uh, those who are, sort of seen as being on the margins of what Bridget Anderson calls the community of value, the the circle of people who whose whose belonging is never questioned. Um, it it is their otherness that that sort of forces them to justify their own belonging, their own existence, and to fight for it. To not have it taken for granted. And so some of the markers that people wear on their bodies or in their voice that show their differences to other people uh, can more strongly send them to the margins, make them have to work harder to get back in. And in the context of Ecuador, um, you know, the one I, I asked someone early on you know, how, how can you actually tell the difference between an Ecuadorian and Colombian? Because I can't. And um, the main thing that the migrants themselves said was their accent. As soon as they started talking, people could, could tell. Colombians um, sort of speak more quickly than Ecuadorians. Ecuadorians have... Um, a, a diminutive that they'll use. So instead of cafe, they'll say cafecito, which means little ca- cafe, sort of a, a, a modesty ingrained in the, in the culture. And so not only is there a difference, but people culturally ascribe sort of normative values to that difference. Oh, well, those Colombians are just being, um, you know, presumptuous and rude and, and, and things like that. And so, um, that. And, and one interviewee told me, Colombians are perceived to be sexier. Uh, and that's another way that Ecuadorians sometimes distinguish. I'm not really sure how you operationalize that. But, uh, but it does play into some of the stigmas that are attached. And I talk about this a few times in the book, that Colombian women particularly, um, there's this sort of stigma of prostitution. And um, and for Afro-Colombians, where race intersects, there's a, a, a sort of intersectional multiplication of these these markers of difference in the harm that they cause. So um, an Afro-Colombian doesn't necessarily may have the same kind of racist rejection that Afro-Ecuadorians do. And there is a long history of um, mestizaje and blanquimiento, which are, are terms in Latin America that refer to the idea that a social hierarchy white is on top. And to the extent that indigenous people were there, they could have social mobility through whitening their gene pool over time, intermarrying with white people. And so Mestizajes or Mestizos, the the sort of descendants of European and indigenous people are the majority of Ecuador and um, Afro Ecuadorians have, you know, Scholars have sometimes talked about their invisibility. They just don't get talked about in the national conversation the same way that mestizos and indigenous people do. And so they are really constrained to sort of the margins of society, and they're geographically concentrated, mostly on the coast. Um, so in Quito, if people see a black person walking around, they assume they're either Colombian or they're from the coast, and both of those are stigmatized because there's a, a sort of regional rivalry. Um, and, and so I did find that in Ecuador, both accent and race are salient sources of sort of social invisibility expectation. Obviously, you can't pretend to be a different skin color than you are. But one of the coping mechanisms people had was either just to not go outside, they'd stay at home in order to reduce their contact at all with other people. On accent, someone told me, you know, I just stay at home and keep my mouth shut. I can pass as an Ecuadorian as long as I'm not talking. And then for Afro-Colombians, living patterns, many of them um, make a conscious decision to go and live on the coast in Esmeraldas um, because there are a lot more black people there, Afro-Ecuadorians there. So they kind of blend in better. There are more people who are unlikely to discriminate against them by race. There's a historical sort of trajectory of cross-border um, flows with 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 um, families there. Uh, just for context, I think there's probably – Maybe 3% of Ecuadorian population is Afro-descendant, maybe 5%. But um, on the coast, it's 25% in in Esmeralda's province. So it's a significant concentration. And people said that they felt more at ease living there than they did in Quito. So you can sort of see how um, how, how race acts as one of these markers of difference.
0: So I, I realize that we've discussed many of these big themes throughout your book, um, but I haven't actually asked you the methods question. And so I would love it if you would be willing to speak with us for a little bit about the methodologies that you used. Um, I found it, I found it so so compelling to see. I don't know, like there were there were surveys, there were there was a lot of clearly you know long durée, like you know throughout long periods of time as well. You know, research. I don't know. There's there's just a lot of really, really neat ways of, of approaching these really big questions. And so um, also just for me, I, I, I found it so compelling, the methods that you used, it really seemed to me like it really, it, it seemed to, to make part of your argument as well, um, in particular, in thinking about, you know, how do we approach these big questions? How do we think about, you know, understanding, you know, lived experiences, the state migration and all of that, um, but yeah, I would love to hear you speak a little bit about methodology.
2: Yeah, thanks for for opening that door and it's one I'm I'm happy to talk about. I'm a more of a qualitative m- methods person at heart, so the interview is sort of my go-to because I can touch it and and grapple with it and it makes sense to me and I get to hear people's perspectives and ask them why they think that and that was the heart of the original dissertation and then Uh, my identity as a researcher is a question driven researcher. So first I figure out what is the big question that I care about and then, well, what kind of evidence would allow me to answer that question and then choose the methods accordingly. So I am not the kind of person who has, you know, decades of experience doing one kind of coding in R that answers one kind of question. Then I go look for questions to apply it to. i I'm glad there are people out there who do that because they can really have sophisticated fancy tests, but that's just not how I I work. So a lot of times I'm using methods that I'm not, you know, there I haven't spent decades doing them. I, I I use them in order to answer a question that I have. And I try to triangulate data. Obviously, each method has strengths and limitations. Um, And with interviews, they're wonderful in telling the rich story and the why questions. But the common critique is, well, how how generalizable is this? You know, these particular people you talk to, I don't know if most people in the country uh, share that. I don't have a sense of how strongly or widely that idea is shared or does it have carry somewhere else? And so I did want to be able to um, have input from enough observations, enough people that um, that I could make a claim. This is not just a few migrants who's who think this. Most migrants that I talked to had this experience, and things like you know discrimination um, experiences, as an example, is one that most people did um, have since coming to Ecuador. Most people. Um, worked for um not a formal contract they were working in the informal sector and um a majority worked for less than two dollars a day and so you know the kind of economic precarity that's there and those are things i wouldn't be able to know from uh, an interview Uh, but taking seriously some of some scholars who have talked about subnational variation um it's not enough just to say this is what happens in Ecuador because there are huge differences between what happens in Quito versus what happens on the border. And so that's why I decided to sort of segment my survey into six provinces. And I did it in the, um, the capital city of each of those six provinces that really receive most of the, the migrants in the Northern border region. And, um, I also did interviews in each of those places so it it gave me a a, a sense of the variation within them that helped to nuance the story um, And s- from the survey data I was able to do some network analysis because if if a key part of my question is this idea of networks and their importance, you know I could describe them based on what people told me, but there's something about showing, pictures that that sort of visualize in lago agrio in the amazon jungle actually there are organizations that meet weekly with each other they have a a mesa de movilidad they call it a sort of round table of different kinds of institutions that talk about the cases they have look for solutions and are coordinating and that had a richer kind of network than um than Quito did or Esmeraldas on the coast where people kind of did their own thing and worked in silos. And, um, by showing the actual differences in those networks, it, I think increases the credibility of that claim at least. So, yeah, I, I had, um, network analysis from the surveys, other survey data. And I wasn't doing particularly sophisticated stuff with the survey, you know, um, but even just sort of descriptives and cross tabs and things like that, tell a powerful story um, that that gives some bones maybe to the, the richness of the interviews. And It wasn't the core part of this book, but I did bring in a little bit of the discourse analysis work that I had done for another paper and sort of tracing how news stories and political um, rhetoric have referred to migrants versus refugees versus mobilidad humana, human mobility over time, and why that matters, which institutions sort of were given a platform in social spaces. So that helped to, um, you know, constructivists like to talk about how different organizations negotiate meaning. And and that's sort of a concrete way of getting at that. So it's not quite so abstract.
0: So that, that leads me to another question that I had, which um, I realized, you know, asking someone um, about, the gaps that they're pointing to um, can can feel a bit unfair, but just the way that you the, the way that you set up your research and the way that you describe your methodology, it seems to me to be written um, as if it is offering um, ways in which it, it can be taken up, um, and I'm I'm also thinking of of um, you know there's there's a not insignificant um, number of points where you're where you really address the fact that there is a need for additional kinds of migration research in this way, Um, even, you know, going so far as to nod to the fact that, you know, if we're talking forced migration, most of it is happening um, in the quote unquote global south. Um, you know, regardless of what you know national rhetoric is is saying. I'm from the U S. living in Canada. My research is in the U K. So I'm used to that sort of other other side to that. Um, this is I, I realize a, a long and sort of clumsy way of of asking if you could speak a little bit more towards you know where you envision some of this this going in the future or um, ways that you would like to see this this taken up because this this book, which is so I mean thoroughly meticulously researched, seems to really open up a door to really exploring other questions, um, in, in, in different ways.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as you, you know, I I appreciate you highlighting the global North global South thing, because that is for me, part of the, Takeaway motivation for this book. Uh, a pretty large proportion of migration research tends to focus on migrants who originate in the global south and come to the global north, the US and Europe, especially. And, you know, there are lots of migrants who do that, and that's important work. But there's about half of migrants are in the Global South, either those who have are, are South-South migrants or even those who come from the Global North to the Global South. And in terms of forced migrants and refugees, 86% live in the Global South. And so that's where the story is. And I think that when you do research in that region, it's not only important, important, required, uh, but also sort of liberating to focus not only on what the law says and assume that if the construction of this institution, the end point is when the institution gets created. You also have to look at how it is implemented afterwards, the gaps and things like that. Um, And in a Global South setting, it it sort of leads uh, uh, to that being easy easy maybe easier to investigate but i also think there's something powerful about a story that is developed in the global south like this one based on my experiences in ecuador and see how it can explain immigration politics in the global north and because so many theoretical platforms or frameworks are developed by people in US and Canadian and European universities and then assumed to apply everywhere. Or you know, the goal is to see if they have travel to the global south. And that's good to do. But I want to sort of up in that hierarchy and see what we can learn in the in the US and elsewhere um from the global south. So right now one of the ways that this project is being extended and methodologically um, sort of tested a bit more than I even did in the book is with a colleague at Providence College, Matt Guardino, we have um, established what we call the Immigrant Visibility and Political Activism Research Collaborative, Park, and it's funded by the Russell Sage Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And we have done a a national survey of US respondents about their, their perceptions of immigrants, tolerance of political activism. So the goal is to essentially take the framework of the invisibility bargain, and through a very high quality nationally representative sample in the US, see how well it explains behaviors here. And not only to sort of test rigorously the travel to a new case as a way of theory testing, but also um, adding in some nuances. So we're looking at how much difference it makes um, psychological predispositions like authoritarianism and social dominance orientation, um, whether those amplify people's um Willingness to engage in social sanctions when they perceive an invisibility bargain um, kind of uh, uh, violation. And we're looking also at the role of media framing and um, and sort of discourse in in making those things more intense we have an experiment that we embedded in the survey that shows people a visual cue of a photo of people protesting and uh, we vary whether it's immigrants or a women's protest to get at what difference it is when it's immigrants and then within immigrants sometimes they have um spanish language signs that they're holding sometimes arabic language signs sometimes there are women who have hijabs sort of as a marker of religious difference and so um we're finding really powerful evidence that this same pattern applies in the US as well and quite widely held but also sort of contributing some nuances on on the social psychological mm-hmm. side that um you know in what cases is the invisibility bargain more intensely mm-hmm. um, acting and what mitigates it right i talk in the book about contact theory and the the degree to which a meaningful relationship with people from the other group in this case migrants can help to mitigate that prejudice and and the intensity of the the backlash and that certainly we're seeing in the us context too especially the positivity of the the Contact. So it's not just that you know a lot of migrants, but also that you have meaningful relationships with them that have been positive. When that happens, um, even when you perceive a violation of the invisibility bargain, you're less likely to you want to kick them out of the country or have all these really quite negative views about their right to engage in political activity. So that's one of the ways that we're extending what the book did and hopefully having a whole new research agenda that will be fruitful. And then even within Ecuador, I've got the projects I mentioned, the discourse analysis project that looks at the same population, but asks different things about them. How do they legitimize or stigmatize the idea of migration over time? And how do different kinds of political actors, if there's a competition between the state and the United Nations in a messaging war, what explains who prevails? Right. Those are some of the kinds of questions that I'm asking. And then in my role as a as an advisor at UMass Boston, I have doctoral students um, who are doing wonderful things to also extend some of the ideas in other places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic and um, and other places. So that's how I see some of this trajectory going forward beyond the book.
0: Well, you've taken up a lot of your time today. Um I realize that in answer to my last question, you you sort of answered my my traditional question, which is sort of you know what are you working on now? Um, but I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to add to that to that you know sort of closing question of what sort of projects are you engaging with now? Um, you know, even even building on the the really fantastic book that you've published recently.
2: Yeah, thanks for that that sort of closing question, Ren. And I, I alluded to the the sort of ways that my scholarly research agenda is looking going forward, what I see extending out of the book. But I guess the the one thing I'll I'll mention as an additional piece that's important to me. Is again back to this identity as a scholar practitioner. So I'm very interested and invested in okay, once we understand these patterns, how do we use that knowledge to make life better for people? Um, you know, is there ways that we can distill these nuanced sort of uh, academic findings into uh, pr- interventions, into programs, maybe even into advocacy for certain policies that would? Make it easier for migrants to to access the rights they already have, and to um, increase protection, increase peace in migrant receiving communities, and decrease you know uh, discrim- discrimination, hate crimes, and things like that. So with the if park project, that's really built into the design and we are trying to um, engage with policymakers and, and peace building organizations and others. And of course my own peace building organization, we have uh, several platforms through Simproc um, where we have like a summer Institute on conflict transformation across borders that brings people who are engaged in peace building work together to learn about it. And so, by teaching the book and teaching the results of this research in those spaces, and then helping to incubate projects that they are carrying out. The hope is that it will help to enrich some of the the practices. And in fact, we've been able the past couple of years through support from the Rotary Foundation to uh, have a kind of incubator fund that people who have gone through our educational programs and sort of learn the the content knowledge are often leaders in their own spheres of influence. And so we have a sort of, we're trying to be catalysts, helping them scale up some of their efforts through small grants and then sort of give them a platform to talk through a blog or a podcast about those experiences so others can learn from them. And so I'm hoping at least that through some of those structures that we have in place, we'll be able to not just have an interesting story to tell, but that it'll influence policy and practice.
0: Well, that seems like the perfect note to end on. Um, I'm so excited we were able to speak today. And thank you again, Jeff, for your time.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.